Hello and welcome to Political Traction. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. Over the last decade, Canada has grappled with decisions around welcoming refugees in Syria, Afghanistan, and Ukraine. Today, I'm joined by Canadian Senator Ratna Omnivar, one of Canada's leading voices in migration, integration, and displacement, and a member of the World Refugee and Migration Council. Together, we unpack the current debate around refugee resettlement and contrast the government's response to the Afghanistan crisis with supporting Ukrainian migrants. This is Political Traction. Senator, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, I was talking with some of my colleagues um, about the issue, kind of, of refu- the crisis of refugees that we face globally, but I think even in Canada with a lot of the news about Afghanistan versus Ukraine, not that they should be versus one another, but certainly there's a media narrative there about that. Um, and I thought it'd be great to have someone of your, we thought it'd be great to have some of your expertise and experience. So thank you so much for coming on. You're so welcome. I'm looking forward to this discussion. <laughs> Um, so first of all, just to set a name and a place, obviously the Senator, um, you were coming to us from Toronto, from Ottawa, from your Senate. I see a nice plant in the background, so I don't think yes. it's the Senate having been there, but uh, where are you, <laughs> where are we joining you from? You're joining me from downtown West Toronto, where I've lived, uh, for the last, what, 38, 39 years. Uh, and so, yes, the plant and the pictures are all very much personal in mind. Oh, very good. Um, and before we delve into the issue, you were appointed to the Senate in 2016 as an independent senator. Um, did you always want to get in? I know you've had a long history of, you know, civic action and you've the order of one. Um, but did you always want to get into politics or were you kind of like, all right, if I can do this as an independent person and make a difference? Like what was were you surprised? Were you excited? Well, I mean, first of all, I had no aspirations to get into politics at all. And every time I was asked in the past, I would say that, no, that's not for me. So I was completely gobsmacked when I was approached and then appointed. Uh, and, And frankly, I was completely gobsmacked at myself as well for taking on this this challenge, because it really is, you know, when you're on the outside and you're an advocate and as activist uh, as I am, you see things very differently. But when you're on the inside and you learn the ropes of how things work, then you really realize how much more difficult it is to make change in in a structure, in a system, in legislation or in policy. Uh, Having said that, you know, it's been a completely terrific experience uh, because nothing gets you closer to the way this country works than getting involved with legislation and making laws because laws impact everybody. So I'm a very different person from who I was in 2016 in terms of my knowledge, but I'm not a different person in terms of my values and what I'm committed to and what I want to push through. And jumping into that, so, you know, you've been in this, we want to talk to you about, um, you know, how Canada treats immigrants and refugees um, in this country. It's, it's, it's a constant sort of political football, either because of major issues in the world or because of, you know, skills shortage. Um, you've been in the space for a long time, you know, founder of Global Diversity Exchange, you're a director with the Samara um, Center for Democracy. What is the biggest change you've seen over the dec- over the last few decades about how can, or have you seen one about how Canada treats um, newcomers to this country? 
so when you're talking about decades, you know, let's go back, uh, let's say 20 years ago, I think we've seen a real shift in the last 20 years to an implicit recognition that uh, Canada will can only prosper uh, if uh, its immigrants prosper alongside with it. And in fact, Canada prospers when immigrants continue to choose this country. And I'm talking immigrants broadly, but mm -hmm. that also includes refugees. So we shifted from, I think, from an understanding of of, uh, of, of immigra immigration as, as, you know, one file of many to now, especially when you think about nation building and prosperity of the future, immigration becomes a far more central file because of our population growth and labor market shortages. So I think that has shifted in the last 20 years. Alongside of that, our, our own sense of self as, as a country that pegs itself as responsive and compassionate for refugees uh, has also been, uh, you know, uh, uh, strengthened, uh, partly because we take such huge national pride in our successes. You know, we, we talk about the success of, of the reception that Ismaili refugees received in the 1970s of the, 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 the wonderful lift this entire country got from bringing 80,000 Indo-Chinese refugees. And more recently, you know, our, our handout to the world in accepting uh, what we started off as 40,000 Syrians, but far exceeding that target in the end. Uh, so we take great pride in these. And so they become, I think, central to our narrative of how we see ourselves as a nation. So in the last 20 years, I would say, yes, things have paused, have shifted considerably, uh, both in terms of refugees and Im immigrants, which doesn't mean things are perfect by no means. By no means are things perfect, but I always am very, very proud of being a Canadian uh, in a country which is, you know, as I like to say, um, always a work in, pro in, in progress. And because we, th there is no absolute destination we arrive at. We always have more work to do. Um, th thank you, Ed. That was a very um, complete and kind of inspiring response. Uh, and picking up on, on your point there about how Canada takes pride in sort of accepting refugees. I find it interesting our political parties kind of fight to see who's going to accept more, which is <laughs> yeah, like I think highly unusual for like a Western democracy and in particular given the shadow of the US. So um but you say we take pride in this. And I think we do as a country, but do you think that pride is deserved? I mean the coverage recently of the challenges the Af like Afghani translators um and those you know folks who helped us there um, how they've been stuck, you know, and kind of, you know, in, in various countries, um, how organizations have started to give up because they can't handle the bureaucracy of trying to get folks over here. Um, is there sort of an underbelly to this of, of where, you know, yes, we like to, it's sort of like healthcare. It's like, oh, everyone gets access. But if you actually look at the system, there's lots more work to be done. Uh, that's actually a perfect analogy. Uh, uh, our healthcare system is really something to be proud about, but we all know that issues of access uh, plague the system. In 
the particular refugee file, I would say our intentions are admirable for a country of our size. Um, and perhaps our footprint is not as large as we would like it to be, because frankly, our implementation sucks. It gets in the way <laughs> time and time again, you know, time and time again. Um, so I was just speaking to uh, today to the Ukrainian ambassador to Canada, and she told me something, and I know this intuitively, but it's it sets you back when someone uh, tells you a story in from present from the present day where Ukrainian women, you know, a woman with two children, is asked to fill out a form that requires three hours or more to fill out in English. They, you know, we want to know the last five addresses you lived in, the last 10 places of work and what your title was and how much money you made. And then, you know, she has to stand for 18 hours outside the Polish embassy with her two children in the winter to get the biometrics test. And then she has to stand for another 18 hours in the cold to get the stamp in her passport. You know, so our systems and, and, you know, our systems are highly articulated, they're sophisticated, they're almost, you know, as people would say, best in class, but the systems have become an institution unto themselves and they let us down in times of urgency and need. And we've seen that in Afghanistan and we've seen that in Ukraine. It's funny because the way the Ukraine issue has been painted, I mean, they've announced the Canada-Ukraine authorization for emergency travel, like that whole program. It's as if Canada scoops up thousands of Ukrainian refugees just like and deposits them in the country very rapidly in comparison to Afghanistan. But I, a friend of mine's trying to help family get in from Ukraine, and she's talked about the biometrics issue as well. Yeah. Um, and that's something that's also plagued, I know, in Afghanistan as well. Is that something you think we should just say, like, enough like this is in times of crisis like yes and through normal processes biometrics are fine but are there points where we should just say okay the bureaucratic system doesn't work we need to heave ho with that i think they've tried with the ukraine but certainly not it seems with afghanistan uh well here's what i think i've been i've been thinking about it and we need to think outside the box and i'll i'll think about the box right now on your podcast um you know you're absolutely right biometrics and and information that is necessary and important should be collected whether we collect it by paper or online frankly those are transactional issues that the government should be able to deal with even though it isn't frankly again but we have had so much experience uh, from uh, the Indo-Chinese uh, lift, from the Kosovars that we brought in mid-1990s to the Syrians, that we should have, uh, we should dedicate a unit in IRCC uh, to a standing unit that is permanently resourced in terms of a rapid response team. Just as there are other, uh, uh, you know, departments of government that have a rapid response team. We need to uh, uh, learn the lessons from the past, uh, distill their, uh, their essence, and deploy these lessons when called on through a rapid response, let's say to a Ukraine, uh, in, in a Ukraine or an Afghanistan situation. In an Afghanistan situation, we could sort of say, learning from our past in Syria, wait a second, uh, maybe Afghans who are outside Afghanistan should not be required to be uh, prima facie uh, UN refugees and 
and we could facilitate them their arrival to Canada in the same way we facilitated the arrival of Syrians because we waived that requirement. We've mm. done that before, right? Or, or we could say in the past, we have provided biometrics testing on arrival. We've done that. So, you know, you, you put these, these pieces of innovation together and then you create a system which can be deployed in a moment of crisis rapidly. And, you know, I, I think that beyond, you know, uh, 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 trying to revamp the paper files or the online files or whatever they are uh, with, with new systems, I just don't know where we can turn rest. I was, I was really disappointed to read today in, in, the, in the newspaper that the Veterans Transition Network, which mm-hmm. operated the, the Lara shelters in Afghanistan, has shut down because it can't cope with the delays. They're turning their attention to other vet, veteran issues in Canada. Uh, sponsorship organizations have shut down because the government refuses to announce new numbers for sponsorship, uh, for private sponsorships. Now, I'm a, admittedly a serial sponsor and have sponsored roughly 18 Syrian refugees. But for the life of me, I cannot understand why the government is not opening up this instrument for, for Canadians to help in the sponsorship of either Afghans or Ukrainians or other people. It's like a black box and they're not opening it. I don't understand why. Do you, I'm just positing this. I don't know if this is true, um, but I think, you know, with the Ukrainian crisis, one, it's front and center. Two, um, there is a clear champion in the government who is Christopher Freeland, a very powerful, um, there's also like clear political benefit to, you know, to being interventionist there. Do you think those issues, once they're off the front pages, they lack a champion and that is why there's just not the political benefit to it. So people kind of move on. Or is it more deep rooted in the system? I, I think our our um, we 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 need to hold our governments harder to account. When our government put out a number, we are going to bring forty thousand Afghan refugees. They then very quickly said, "Wait a second, forty thousand over three years." <laughs> yeah, okay. we're, we're ten thousand now. I think. Yeah, yeah, run? yeah, yeah, and. Uh, they, they, whenever we, we ask the government, okay, so how many will come as government assisted versus privately sponsored versus others? They're not disclosing the fact that they're, and these are public policy decisions. So I think we need to, even if the government's attention wavers, it is the public that must hold them to account you know, through uh, interventions like what you and I are doing right now. We're talking about an important political issue. The government uh, will at some point run again for election. And we should be able to see whether they have lived up to their promise um, or or not. Uh, That's one way of holding them uh, to account. Another way, obviously, is, is... Politically in Parliament, which is what I try and do, I I take every opportunity I can to ask a question about, you know, give me the latest numbers. What are you doing about the shelters in Afghanistan? What about funding? You just have to keep up the pressure. And then, of course, talking to the media, which which is really important. But frankly, the media also has 
a short span of attention. You yeah. know, Ukraine right now is top of the agenda. Afghanistan was two months ago. It's like, yeah, it's amazing. You know, been there, Ukraine done that. Stand. Let's move on. Yeah, and and tomorrow it will be something else. Um, and and we don't elect we don't elect governments uh, to just deal with one crisis at a time. We we don't we. We elect governments to deal with a multitude of issues and crisis, and I'm not prepared to let the government off the hook just because things got a little bit more complex. Um, what about you know it's been it's been spoken about by the head of the UN um, is the issue of race in in refugees and immigration, right? Like there's there's a lot of discussion that people are paying attention, especially in the Western world, to Ukraine because. I'm a white woman, they look like me, that could be me, versus if you look at Syria or you look at what's happening in Africa, there's just some idea that those countries are, are less evolved or whatever, and, and that's just what happens there. Um, do you think we're having enough conversation as a country about the role of race and why the public is much more engaged in one country's issues versus another? I don't think we're having that conversation yet. There is a big conversation about race in this country. Um, but it has been focused on racism against Indigenous people and mm -hmm. racism um, directed at Black people in Canada. It hasn't spilled over into the kind of what I would say is pretty apparent uh, differentiation between how we treat refugees from one part of the world yeah. versus another. Now, I will grant you that a certain amount of tribalism will always exist. You know, we... Uh, people have a shared history with uh, with with Ukraine. We have a large Ukrainian diaspora in this country. There's a shared religion for many aspects. There's, uh, you know, all kinds of of, of shared regionalism. Um, but but in the end, refugees are fleeing their countries because they must. And and we need to find that commonality as opposed to these. Um, these differences that that play into our into our narrative, frankly, and and anyone with a head on their shoulders should be asking uh, themselves, why is the government uh, somewhat quick? I would not say very quick, somewhat <laughs> quick on 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 creating new pathways of entries to Ukrainians. You know, you can come in as temporary, temporary visa holders, you can work here for three years, uh, but they're not doing the same for Afghans. Uh, even though, you know, there are Afghans who could, uh, you know, very readily contribute to our labor market. There are Afghan students who have gained uh, entry into our post-secondary educational institutions, but are not being granted a visa to come and, and study in Canada. So I, I think there is definitely, in my view, uh, a question that needs to be raised around uh, racism in the system, uh, around Islamophobia in the system. And then let's put the third um, uh, you know, elephant in the room uh, on the table, and that is security. Every time a security issue is raised on a file, you can, you know, I hate to put it this way, you can kiss it goodbye because that strangles the whole process. The supremacy of, of uh, security in the facilitation of files is huge. And 
and and and and so we really have to think about which questions around security are really urgent and which which questions are are maybe uh, um, you know secondary in nature what can we deal with and what what can we absolutely not deal with i'm not prepared to sacrifice the security of this country either but to uh to simply sort of say there's a blanket stop on a file because a flag has been raised somewhere by someone is not enough to stop this you know i'm a member of the world refugee and migration council and we have written and written and asked for a ministerial high level task force between the Minister of Immigration, the Minister of Global Affairs, and the Minister of, of, uh, of uh, Public Safety uh, to, to deal with these, with these files that are clogged up in one way or another and to move them forward or to move them out of the way as, as it may be. But without that high level ministerial input, uh, uh, public servants are, are simply going to take their mark time. So that's that's another issue we have to put on the table. So taking off, I know you can't really do this, but I'm going to ask you to do it anyway. Taking <laughs> off your government senator hat and putting on, but with your knowledge of your government senator activity and putting on your previous advocacy activist hat, how does Canada, like, because we've talked about the problems, which I think is important, right? You need to look inward as a country and say, okay, we're good at this, we're bad at this. It's good we're proud of this, as opposed to arguing how few immigrants and how few refugees we should take in. How does Canada stack up against our, you know, like countries in the world or period against others in the world on this? Well, I mean, you take a look at the countries that are really bearing the brunt, you know, they are in the first line, Afghanistan, Poland now, uh, Colombia and Bangladesh. And of course, Uganda, because one can't forget the refugee crisis in Africa. These are the countries that are taking the brunt of the refugees. And since, uh, you know, there is no mechanism uh, that the world has uh, to share the burden of responsibilities with these other countries, Canada gets off relatively light. So we take in 40,000 or 70,000 Syrian refugees. Germany took in a million. Our geography, <laughs> our geography is a gift to us. You know, we are far removed from the world. And this removal from the, the, the daily stress that countries that border refugee producing countries has given us the gift of time to develop excellent systems and protocols and processes. We likely have one of the best articulated systems in the world for dealing with asylum seekers who come to our, who come to Canada. It's because we we can do so. We have we have the time, we have the space. We're not. I mean, if we were getting, you know, a hundred thousand mm -hmm. refugees every day, I, trust me, our system would collapse too. Uh, and and so we we do some things very well, really well. Uh, we do we do uh, integration and settlement in comparison to other countries really well. There's always room to go, room to grow. But in comparison to others, we really have 
figured this out, that people don't come to this country and settle just by themselves. They need uh, social supports, they need cultural supports, they need, may need political support. So we've built that system really well. And people, governments from all over the world, trapes regularly to Canada to visit and learn how we do this, okay? So that's the good, good side of the story. Um, the, the, the not so good side of the story is that we could be more helpful to the countries in distress and not just Canada alone, but Canada in partnership with other like-minded institutions so that we share the burden with them uh, through tangible ways of, uh, you know, generating uh, support for shelter, food, housing, education, all of those necessary things that all these countries are, are dealing with on their own and th their own economies, you know, we all know how stressed Pakistan's economy is or how stressed Bangladesh's economy is. So I think we could take the lead in this if we were, if, if, if we had the ambition to do so. And certainly, you know, regardless of the conversation you and I have had, Canada has, you know, it, it has, an, has a reputation in the world uh, of a certain kind, and we should use that reputation in, um, in tangible transformational ways uh, to work with like-minded partners so that we help the people where they are. It's actually also a smart thing to do, because if we help people where they are, then maybe they don't need to come to all the other countries. That's a very good point. Um, I know we're almost out of time, but I don't want to get this last bit in here. So you host your own podcast on top of being a Senator yeah. and an advocate and on all kinds of things. Um, the Senator also has her own podcast, which is called moving the needle on wicked problems, which I love the term. Nobody says wicked enough. I think it's excellent. I was listening to it a little bit before this. So can you tell our listeners about it and, and, and some of the work, some of the episodes you've, you've got coming up or you've just had on, uh, we've just completed a mini series on racism. Oh, perfect. Uh, and so we've had a conversation with Canadians across the specter from culture, from arts, from public life, from, from the hill, uh, from health. Uh, and we've said to them, you know, describe to us how you experience racism and what are some of uh, the ways out. And whilst we haven't actually cracked this particular wicked problem it's a particularly wicked problem because it, it it's it's it grows and breathes in our hearts and minds in ways that we don't appreciate the answers however can be structural and systemic so we're just closing off that podcast and I am considering uh you know should I have a themed podcast uh, let's say on on the other big question uh, as of September, which could be corruption. You know, corruption is a huge thing in the world. You know, how many trillion dollars are being squirreled away by corrupt people, including corrupt Canadians, by the way. You know, who 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 hide it here and there, and we all know about the Panama Papers and the Pandora. So I'm thinking about that. I'm I you know should we revert to uh, you know spot podcasts that are more topical? I I you know I I wonder about that. So any advice from you or your listeners would be very very welcome. 
Well, I would just advise them to listen. I had a, I listened to a little bit of it and it was, uh, it was excellent. And I will be taking in the series on race because I think it's important to continue to challenge yourself. Um, Senator, thank you so much for joining us today. I got it. It was a total delight um, yeah. to speak with you and, uh, and hopefully we will maybe meet in person one day, but I trust uh, you'll continue to advocate in government and, and also, you know, hold everyone to account for what they need to do. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Amanda. Lovely chatting with you. Political Traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show is produced by John Gardner, Matthew Barnes, Adam Owen, and Thomas Ashcroft. A very special thank you to this week's guest, Senator Ratna Omnivar. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more from the Senator, be sure to check out her podcast, Moving the Needle on Wicked Problems, available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to rate us online. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Traction Polly. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. We'll see you next time.